Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And we are delighted today to be joined by Gloria Romero. Gloria is former state senator and Democratic majority leader in the California State Senate and also chair of the State of the Senate Education Committee. Gloria, welcome. Good to be with you this morning. Well, today we're going to be talking about education and the state of education, not only in the state of California, but <laughs> nationally. Uh, Joel, you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, um, Gloria, what really started us on this, uh, doing this show is the, the very bad test scores nationally, and I assume also here in California after COVID. What's your assessment of, of where our uh, K through 12 education system is uh, after after the lockdowns and what's happened the last few years? Well, I, I hate to say it, but I mean, basically decade after decade, we are still a nation at risk. And it's really is something that I, I think unless we do some fundamental change in education in, in California so that it's no longer a public works system, but mm. goes really to become a public education system, we're going to keep seeing the same results. Let me give you some statistics. And I've shared some slides. I don't know if, Marshall, if you can go ahead and flash some of those on screen that we can look at. There but you go. basically, People can see your slides now. Yeah. And if you'll see, I mean, Pink Floyd, the wall, I really think that should be our theme song right now. That basically, you know, we don't need no education. You know, <laughs> teachers, leave those kids alone. Because sadly, with all of the revolts we've seen from parents over the wokeism um, and the shutting down of the schools, the union bosses, I think it's really apropos. And Pink Floyd was probably ahead of their time. But if we take a look at the nation at risk, I mean, still today, it is appalling that only half of all California students performed at grade level in reading on basically on the most recent state administered test. And if we look at fourth graders, which is a key metric in terms of how we look at projections for education in California, 34% of California fourth graders scored proficient at grade level uh, um, in math in 2019, and we've known that, of course, the kids have actually gone backwards since then. Out of 50 states, that means that California, the land of, of, of Hollywood, the land of innovation, of technology, we're 44th in the nation. We are near the bottom. That's an F, basically, by any metrics. And if we take a look at that average, 34%, when you start taking a look at by ethnic group, Latinos, African-Americans, it is particularly appalling. Think about this statistic, 9%, 9, that's not even double digits, 9% of Blacks scored proficient in eighth grade math. How, how does a young African-American male or female hope to become an astronaut, an engineer, even become a teacher because you've got to pass tests overall when you've got 91% not scoring proficient in mathematics. And if you take a look at for Latinos, it's not much better. It's 12%. For white students, Caucasian students, it's 51%, 51%. But that's not a number that we should brag about either. So overall, you can see that, as I say, the system isn't working. 
you know, we start, we still are a nation at risk. And a lot of people have asked, how did we get into this? Is it a question of money? Uh, I would say, yeah, money matters, but money is not the answer. Well, and I wonder, you know, just based on the idea that you put the Pink Floyd quote up before, is it is it parental attitude? Are we just simply not prioritizing education? Or is it conscious, like, know-nothingism? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question entirely, but I would say it is the system itself. It's how California designs and runs education. It is not a public education system. It is a public works system. You when mean I like patronage? Like patronage. I mean, uh, it's interesting because when I first got to Sacramento, I, I you know, you, you meet all the, the interest groups, right? I was stunned. And I've been on education committees from day one that I entered the legislature in both the assembly and the Senate. So I got 12 years of upfront, in your face, looking at the alphabet soup of special interests, you know, AFT, SEIU, NEA, the PTA, which you think is about parents. Oh, no. The PTA, I would say, is more T than P. It's about the teachers rather than the parents. Uh, the administrators have a union, et cetera. And it's no doubt then when you think about the, uh, the, the role of education and all of these interest groups that uh, you may be surprised to find out that in terms of political power in Sacramento, the unions, the teachers union specifically have more political power. And by that, you mean a war chest to give donations to candidates so they can run for office or be defeated or be elected in office. They are more powerful with their war chest than tobacco, oil, you know, big pharma combined. The teachers union has the most powerful war chest. And I saw that in 12 years serving in the legislature. And sadly, you find that, you know, I mean, I'm a Democrat. I took on the unions. I'm a union member. I, I paid my union dues uh, to the very unions that were there sitting in committee, basically opposing and trying to kill every reform measure I put out. Uh, but it's really one where it becomes about the adults in the system. It becomes about the pensions and the perks. And I believe in due process. I will always support due process. I believe in better pay for teachers, but I wanted to see some merit going into it. I wanted to see, you know, I believe in testing and I'm not ashamed to say that. I, I don't believe in teaching to the test. But, you know, think about it. When we go to the doctor's office, what's the first thing they do? You know, you step on a scale. They check your blood pressure. You know, if you're diabetic, they check, you know, your sugar levels. You know, I used to go to Weight Watchers. First thing, step on the scale. And it's a guidepost. You know, when we drive a car on the freeway, we have a dashboard and it tells us a number. And yes, it goes up and down, but it's supposed to help us basically be better drivers. So I took a look at you know, the role of standardized testing, and I do believe that it's important to link outcomes in student achievement to the efficacy of teaching in the classroom. And that teachers unions have fought left and right. So, so what, what is the, you know, anybody with a brain is going to want a linkage between the input and the output. 
right? What what is it that makes them so averse for trying to create some accountability? Well, you know, to a large extent, you've got to basically give it to the unions. They uh, they're there to represent their members. Bottom line, they are not there for the education of children. They are. But if there you talk to, to if you talk their to their members, members, if you talk to their members, and you talk to teachers, and you ask them, "Hey, do you think that you know, in some way, you should be held accountable for the efficacy of your teaching?" I, I would bet you'd get a lot of teachers that would say, "Well, yeah." I, I was wondering on how, right? But I, I don't think you'd find people saying no to that. Yeah, Absolutely. when you talk to teachers, what do they say to you about? I and mean, yeah. this is a horrific performance that's hurting California's future and particularly um, uh, minorities. So what, what are, when you, when you confront teachers or talk to them, what are, do they, do they buy the party line from the union or are they dissenting? I, I would separate the, uh, the administrators, you know, the executive boards from the rank and file teachers and most rank and file teachers. Yeah, I agree. They can recognize who's the bad teacher, who needs additional help, et cetera. I also think too, though, that that's where school districts have to get involved in better professional development and training. Our schools of education that graduate teachers, quite frankly, I would collapse them, do away with them, and basically come out with some better designed programs, especially for teaching low-income, high-poverty kids. When John Daisy was the superintendent of LA Unified, I remember he and I had a very interesting conversation where he had wanted basically to start his own teacher training program, but then you get prohibited because you know what? Guess who makes money off that teacher training program? Your universities. So they're, they don't want to give up what has been a cash cow for them. So I think there's a lot of issues, but bottom line is this. We want to support good teaching. We want to invest in good teaching. We want to invest in the profession. But the fight for pensions and perks and pay should not dominate the education sector. You know, I, I shared a, uh, uh, another slide with Marshall. When we think about it, and this is always interesting, we always talk about the military industrial complex. Well, we have an education mili- uh, industrial complex. And when you look at the military industrial complex, complex, the U.S. as a whole, we spend about $800 billion on national defense. Okay, $800 billion. That's more than China, Russia, India, the United Kingdom, France, Saudi Arabia, you name it. And overall, we have a top-notch military. People don't really argue with that. We pretty much feel that we will be defended. Thank you for our troops who serve. Now think about education. In education, the United States spends more. We spend about $900 billion on K through 12 every year, 900 billion. And when you and that's not even counting the new money that came in because of COVID. So think about it. Number one in defense internationally in the uh, in the United States on education, when you've got half the kids overall who can't read at proficiency levels, nine percent of African-American kids being able to perform. We've got some 800 schools in California right now where 75% of their students cannot read at grade level. That well, is the story that you're the story that you're painting here is that the core underlying reason for this is that the unions won't allow 
for meaningful reform. And when I hear you say that, it makes me think that the system is very lopsided economically toward the um, toward the unions. Where are the parents in all of this? What can parents do? How do you how do you buck this economic juggernaut of the unions to be able to uh, make some kind of impact? And actually, before we address that, let me just say as well, too. Okay, so the unions, but remember, the unions are doing their job. I would really put the onus of responsibility on elected officials. And I'm going to call out my party, the Democratic Party. The top donor to Democrats is the California Teachers Association. And so until Democrats, because we are a one-party state, until we have the backbone to stand up and do the right thing in Sacramento, it's going to continue and continue and continue. Um, Another thing as well, too, is even thinking about due process and the system itself that needs changing tenure. Now, for purposes of full disclosure, I have tenure. I'm a professor emeritus, full professor at California State University. But think about it. Tenure at the California State University system, probably the UC system as well, it's seven years to get tenure. And it is a difficult process. I no, mean, most is, people don't get it, right? Yeah, it's brutal. Right. I, I've been through it. Uh, and, and I mean, you feel horrified, like you're the scum of the earth because you're not doing this, this, and this until you finally get it. Seven years, California, K through 12. On the books, it's two years. In reality, it's about 18 months. Because there's a provision that people have to be notified. It's called the March letter, basically, whereby you have to be notified by March in your second year if you're not going to get tenure or not. So you think about it. After 18 months on the job compared to seven years in the university system uh, and you have a job for life. You breathe, you show up, and that's how districts get money. It's basically, we call it butt-in-seat budgeting. You got kids coming in, that's money for your administrators, pay perks, blah, blah, blah. So what do we do? Yes, I think you have to look at all of it. You have to change, you know, testing, linking, taking a look at teacher training, support teachers, but get rid of that. You show up and breathe and you got a job for life. There's a lot that has to change. Um, Parents are critical. And I think what we saw, we've been hurt by COVID. This shutdown of the schools, which was prompted by Randy Weingarten and the unions. And remember, the UTLA president said, oh, well, you know, maybe the kids can't read and write, but they know the meaning of the word resistance and (laughs) uprising. Golly gee, they probably can't spell it, though. Uh, And so, so it was the unions that shut this down. And we saw what happened. But the good thing was the unanticipated outcome that is a shining light from Virginia across the country was that parents got to see via Zoom what their kids were learning or what they weren't learning. And once they started seeing that and then the mask mandates and the shutdowns and all of that, they started saying adios, goodbye out of here. They started voting with their feet, going to options that are available to them. So where do we go? That's what I think we need. We need. So so you're, you're proposing, you're proposing a more competitive marketplace. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't be afraid to say that overall. I mean, look, think about it. Education. It's the key to the American dream. 
We often, you know, we wax poetic about it. You know, it opens the doors. I know for me, my mother had a sixth grade level of education. You know, I have a PhD. I ended up, you know, uh, uh, being the chair of the education committee. I know what education means uh, to somebody like me who grew up literally on the other side of the tracks. And so, and, and when I was a professor, and when I went to the legislature, and I kept this in mind, I would see moms at the schools I visited, mostly East LA, where I I represented. It was no different. The stati- we are still a nation at risk. So, so I wanted to empower parents. I wrote several pieces of legislation pertaining to parent empowerment, to giving school choice. I am one of those Democrats that believes in opportunity scholarships, and I will say vouchers as well. I, I believe that parents, you know, we talk about my body, my choice, right? Well, it's my kid. So give me the choice. And if school districts perform well, they shouldn't be afraid of a healthy marketplace competition, but they are. So the question I, I wonder is, why aren't we seeing, to be blunt about it, particularly the minority people, I mean, the, the suburban schools aren't necessarily all that great we we teach a lot of the kids who came out of them but you know they they know how to spell and they know how to at least semi write and marshall could probably attest to their math skills or uh, or lack of thereof but what i don't understand is then why are african-american and hispanic representatives basically in the in in the pocket of the very people who are creating a unequal situation for their own children why is that? I I don't know what the psychology is or why it happens. You know, there's when I went to Sacramento, and you know, I I feel like I was the outsider. I was never, and it's not like I aspired to become a legislator. Things happen along the way, and and I'm I'm proud of the work I did to get there. But I, I there's something that happens when you get under the dome. I, I call it memberitis. And basically, you become a member. Uh, It's very cush. You hear a lot about the D.C. swamp. Well, you know what? Sacramento, fifth largest economy in the world, that's a pretty powerful institution. And so I think we have to think about the power there. A lot of people, I think they may have good intentions. They want political careers. And the moment you start questioning You'll get the delegation. You get the arm twisting. I remember being called in to the Democratic caucus and being, I'll be polite, screamed at over the type of legislation that I was sponsoring uh, because I was looking out for poor and minority parents to give them choices in education. Mind you that at the same time that I was chairing the education committee, I was also chairing the prison reform committee. So I will tell you, I have been in virtually every prison in California for nothing that I've done, okay, myself, but I've been in virtually every prison, including death row. And it it, it didn't surprise me that, you know, it's 70% of inmates don't have a high school diploma. And I believe in personal responsibility. I, me and my daughter were the victims of a violent carjacking and we survived here in Los Angeles a a number of years ago. I believe in personal responsibility. You do the time, you do the crime, you do the time. 
But then I also advocated for reforms, for rehabilitation. You can't just lock people up. And so I started saying it's a fast track. We don't get educated. We can't, we get a piece of paper that says we're educated, but then you take a look at the diploma, it's meaningless. And so you can't go out, you can't, you don't have the job skills, you don't have even the, you know, the development of the ethics overall. So it's it's really hard. Parents play a very important role. Uh, I think it's important, and and this is where I will say, I think breakdowns of families has really been detrimental. I do believe it's powerful to have fathers in the home. Uh, And even if there is a split family, to have parents in the lives of kids. You know, President Obama some years ago talked about the importance of parents. Bill Cosby, now disgraced, but in these good days, talked about the importance of parenting. So absolutely, that's critical, I think. Well, and you know, I wonder, I wonder looking at the future, <clears throat> when you when you think about the increased automation in the workplace, mm. the increased reliance on uh, artificial intelligence that everybody is projecting will happen, and what its impact is going to be on the number of jobs that are even available. I mean, it seems to me that the role of education is going to be even more important in the future than it is today. How are, how are we even, are we even thinking about that in public policy when it relates to education? I think education really has become just an afterthought. It really is. I, I, I think to be truthful, it functions as a public works program. Um, that's it, quite frankly. Oh, and when you say public works, let's just make sure that our listeners understand exactly the nuance of what you mean by that. What I hear you say is when you were functioning as a public works organization, it's basically on autopilot. The whole idea is to maintain the system and, and just it, keep it going as is. And it serves the adults in the system who earn paychecks and pension uh, pensions off of the backs of little kids that come in. Kids are basically the ATM. You put that's why if you think about the fight over school choice, the fight over school choice, charter schools, homeschools, you think about it. I, I believe in, in in opportunity scholarships such as what they've done in Florida and Arizona and other states uh, that have allowed parents to basically say, hey, give me the, the slot of money that would otherwise go into supporting education in California, it goes up and down, it's estimated, but I would say overall, it's it's over $20,000 per year per student. Basically do some cut of that, give it to parents to basically say, here is your slip of paper. You get to go and choose the school of your choice. I mean, think about it, where it, it is our, the way we do education in America is by zip code. It's five digits, that's make or break. And then you start finding how do people choose their home values? How do they choose where to buy? Well, basically, the, it's, there's a correlation. The more affluent you are, the higher performing school district. And that's not just because people are smarter. If they're more affluent, you start taking a look at teacher contracts. You start taking a look at how teachers get to choose where they want to go and where they don't want to go. I remember trying to pass some legislation, used to call it again to like battle pay, basically, to entice and to reward teachers, high performing teachers who were doing good jobs to give them additional money to go into lower, you know, higher poverty schools to really begin to turn that around. That was fought by the teachers unions overall. So it's kind of like you feel slammed by every which way. 
And so I, I think it's really important then when we think about parents, give them the choice, remove the obstacles. But, you know, I, I oftentimes point out parents that I have met at the national level, and that's why I fought so hard for the, the parent trigger law for the open, it's called the Gloria Romero open enrollment law that allows parents to basically begin to move out of a system. The unions resisted that every which way, but there have been parents, you know, Kelly, Kelly Williams Bollard, I call, everybody in education should know her name. I call her the Rosa Parks of the modern day education movement. Kelly Williams Bollar is a single mom. She was in Ohio. Her kid was in a crappy school. You know what she did? She want, She knew education's the pathway out. She enrolled her child in a higher performing district. And for that, she was arrested. She was prosecuted. She was sent to jail. She was, she was in her ninth day of, of uh, serving in, in jail when finally then Governor Kasich basically commuted her sentence. I met her when she was on parole in Philadelphia when I went to the trial of another father. His name was Hamlet Garcia. His case was in, with he and his wife, they enrolled their daughter in the school district of the of her uh, of his father-in-law because of a marital separation. They enrolled the child there. The father owned property in that Montgomery County, very affluent, very white. The daughter was more darker skinned in a school where there were maybe 10 kids of color in the entire school. The school district hired a private investigator to go follow the Garcias. They arrested Mr. Garcia, his wife, the father-in-law. They made them, they put a, a handcuffs on made them do the perp walk, the Garcia, Mr. Garcia faced potentially seven years imprisonment for quote unquote, stealing a free public education. I flew out to the city of brotherly love to go witness that trial. It was incredible. And that's where I met Kelly, who, you know, you think about felons being on parole. Here was a mom who was looking for a pathway to a better education. And I've just mentioned those two, but I could give you the names of so many other parents. And the reason that they came, uh, became a foul of the law was because they understood zip code traps kids. It doesn't empower kids. We trap kids in failing schools. Even when we know, because I used to see the lists, you could see the list of schools year after year, generation after generation, failing kids. So this is this is another example, <clears throat> excuse me, of a bifurcating society, <clears throat> and um, you know the kind of the destruction of the middle class. Joel, uh, we've talked about this in lots of different podcasts. What's your sense about about this particular element? Well, I I, I want to you know frame this as we you know try to look for some sort of solution. Um, there's no question that um, uh, you know the Having better schools is, you know, that's one of the reasons we moved uh, from LA to Orange County. And fortunately, um, my youngest got into the Orange County School of the Arts and she got a great education. It's a very diverse um, uh, student body that we also, uh, you know, uh, I've seen some good things like in Long Beach where they have some skills academies. So the question is, how do we build a coalition in the context of a one party state? to get some sort of movement 
some sort of reform, this clearly isn't working. So as we as we sort of get to the end of the, of the discussion, what strategy can we take? Is there any hope? Um, is there any way of turning this around? Are there role models? This may sound harsh, but I think we need to have a parallel system. And to some extent, charter schools have served that purpose. Think about New Orleans. Think about Louisiana. Think about what it took a hurricane. It took death and destruction and damage uh, to basically begin to save kids in the future. Come to California, looking at LA Unified. I really believe that to a large extent, we can spend all our time trying to save the Titanic. There's a part of me that thinks let's get out the lifeboats and let's let the let's get enough lifeboats out to basically save kids, not a system, but mm-hmm. kids. And so what do I mean by that? Let's look at the alternatives, charter schools, homeschools. And not every charter school is great. I, I'm a, I've been the founder of a couple of charter schools. Trust me, not every charter school is good. There are plenty of problems there, but I think we can take a look at that. To some extent, a system has to implode. I remember going to Colorado uh, a number of years ago, and it was very innovative to see various corporations, et cetera. And what they would do is they would put their money where their mouth was. These were different corporate executives, and they they developed a uh, a scholarship fund, call it a scholarship fund. And what they would do is they had enough in the coffers there to basically provide scholarships for kids in high poverty areas to basically go to a Catholic school, a higher performing school. I mean, there's a big debate about religious institutions. I, like I said, I, I believe in it. We've got to go ahead and, 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 and allow for that healthy competition, whether they're Jewish schools, you know, Catholic schools, you name it, there's a varieties out there. But until the system begins to implode by throwing money at this over and over, we're, I mean, we're fooling ourselves. I mean, think how long it's been since Brown v. Board of Education. Separate is not equal. We'll take a look at it today. It's still separate. It's still unequal. And it is absolutely failing and condemning kids to bad futures. So I think you almost have to implode the system, save the kids, give out, give ways out. And that means then you've got to develop capacity overall. So I do believe in in working and supporting some of, you know, really having a massive charter buildup, stripping the legislature of the laws that even prevented the growth of charters, religious schools instruction, maybe again to with districts really encouraging them to develop strong magnet programs. But the district officials They've got to do their own job. They've got to take on their own districts. And like in LA Unified, for example, we've seen superintendent after superintendent, they basically filtered through until basically the union gets off, you know, you know, mad at them and they're gone yeah. with a pretty healthy pension, by the way. But well, we've had some a- good superintendents, but they give up or they're driven out. Well, it's got to be a very thankless job. Uh, speaking of which, I know you've just um, written a new book. Uh, just not that likable. Is that what you talk about in the book? Uh, just not that likable. The price all women pay for gender bias available on Amazon.com. Um, I talk about education. 
uh, uh, quite a bit. But mostly what it's about is about the the perception and the treatment of women in power at the political level, as well as in executive levels of, 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 of the corporate world. And basically looking at some of the double standards, how women are viewed when we speak up. The question of likability, we're talking about it today when we think about it, but even women around the world, from Margaret Thatcher to Indira Gandhi, all face questions of likability. One of the most famous instances is when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were on the debate stage, and uh, uh, then Senator Obama uh, told Hillary Clinton uh, that she was likable enough. That sort of brought up a whole discussion. So it's an interesting, it's a fun read. I do a lot of research on it. And I point out the case of especially of Anne Hopkins, who I think everybody should know her name. She was really the trailblazer who went all the way to the Supreme Court and upon whose her case, we began to establish gender bias as discrimination that cannot be tolerated in America. But that's been almost 30 years ago. And still, we don't really know her name. So it's a good read. It's a fun read education, but women and how women are treated. Well, it's it sounds fascinating, and I'm going to put it on my reading list. And, you know, given the um, the dominance of the education debate um, being really molded by women more than men, I think, um, because mothers have a much bigger stake in this or, or uh, you know, are, are more, uh, what's the right word, catalyzed to participate in the debate. Um, I'm sure the gender bias issue is an important one to deal with when it comes to education. Absolutely. And again, too, the vast majority of teachers are women. But remember, again, we have that dichotomy when we think about the rank and file. um, It's not it doesn't walk in step with the executive boards. I think one thing with parents as well, though, like I, I think it's important that you know, we oftentimes say, well, parents are apathetic. I, I, I would say no. You, you might find parents that are apathetic. But overall, parents pretty much want to do the best thing for their kids. They don't understand the system, though. Oftentimes, they may not speak the language. And oftentimes, the one person that a parent knows is probably the teacher in the classroom who probably at that level doesn't have control over the system overall. Um, And so I think parents in their gut often say, hey, I know my kid isn't reading, but you try to go to whether it's a school board meeting and oftentimes who can even get away to go to a school board meeting. uh, You're easily dissuaded from any type of uh, of change overall. So that's why I think when you take a look at it politically, California is a whole different ballgame. But I think it's changing bit by bit. We saw the victory, and I say it as a Democrat, the victory of Republican Youngkin over, I mean, core Democrat Terry McAuliffe, basically on the question of the role and the rights of parents to direct education. And that was the game changer when Terry McAuliffe basically said for parents basically to get out of the way that they didn't have a role in education. That was the real turnaround. And Glenn Youngkin ran with that. And so I think that's an important message that we should, as Democrats, certainly as Republicans, to to empower parents. Parents don't have money, but they have voices. They have votes for the most part. And uh, but we need the education. We need the awareness. 
if I can say, you know, I ran the, um, it, it, it was the, uh, the parent um, uh, empowerment act uh, open enrollment with a very creative piece of legislation that was fought by the unions, but I was able to get it through and a Republican governor, then Schwarzenegger signed it. Uh, a piece of, of, of legislation that's very empowering to parents and yet nobody knows about it because if you go on to most school districts, they are supposed to by law include it and, and they do, but it's in legalese. It's in bureaucraties. You have to search the web. Well, and your your whole point here is that, you know, when you're dealing with systems that don't want to change, you're going to make them as opaque as possible so people don't really understand them. Exactly. And can't change it. And so, you know, hopefully some of the some of the alternatives that you've laid out uh will be things that that parents and other stakeholders in this debate can can tune into and push for. And who knows? Maybe we'll actually see some daylight. In the, age, in the education system. And Gloria, I just want to say thank you again for joining us for the Feudal Future podcast. I, I have found it fascinating. Joel, uh, any last words? Yeah, I just think that the, the, the big message I would come at the end is how do we move within the context of the one-party system here in California? And I think you could say the same in many of the Northeastern states, and there are some other states that are one-party systems. Is, is there any way of mobilizing the grassroots uh, right now, I don't see how that happens. Well, see, I, I would say forget Sacramento. Uh, to, as somebody coming out of Sacramento, I would say forget Sacramento. We've got a thousand school districts in California. Most of these school board members, the seats are won with 800, 1,000 votes. I mean, we have maybe 10% of the electorate showing up. We should begin to, and it can be done. We should think about what even DeSantis did in Florida. That was Florida, which has more education freedom there. I would really say start local. Well, like start San Francisco local. got rid of the school. Exactly. Board. Exactly. And I think, too, that's where I would begin by saying, forget Sacramento. That's going to come at the very, very end, if it even comes at all. But I think, too, you can begin to take a look at it by running candidates at the local school board level. And then don't get on the board to save the district per se, but to turn it around. Because I do believe, I mean, I, I'm a supporter of public education, but to me, public education is not the building. It's not the district, it's public funds. And where do those public funds go? I believe public education should go with the student, not go into the black hole of a district that feeds the system over and over. So I think you I think think local, act local, begin to identify the school boards and turn them around. Then I think to what they did in Colorado with the corporate executives, start funding these, start funding the scholarships. There has to be implosion to a large extent. Parents have begun to do that. Following, I mean, COVID. I mean, take look at LA Unified. They are down what two hundred thousand kids. I mean, it, it's amazing what's happening because until you know, p- parents have the power to vote with their feet. They're not going to donate to a campaign. Many parents can't vote because of their status. But what parents can do is look for capacity outside the system. And so, you know, boycott. You know, I am one of those Democrats that march with Cesar Chavez and learn the value of a boycott. And it just means I'm not buying your grapes. I'm not shopping here. Same thing as well. Here's my zip code. 
I'm going to go find an alternative. And that, so I think there's a lot that we can do outside the system. And when you put pressure from the outside, the system either devolves and it turns into something different. Maybe it disappears. I don't think it will, but the power is there to transform it, not to reform. You got to transform. What do we say? Reimagine. Let's reimagine it. Well, Gloria, again, thank you very much. This has been a lively and interesting discussion, and we look forward to seeing you on a future episode of the Feudal Future Podcast.